I'm Eric. This is Venkat. We beat the Alphan Path by pulling water out of the sky. Welcome back to the Beat the Alphan Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. Joining me today is Eric Wendt, the CTO of Genesis Systems, and he's joined by Dr. Venkat Code, a research scientist on the team. I'm not going to lie. Genesis Systems is one of the most exciting companies and product ideas I've ever become aware of yet. They manufacture the world's first and only sustainable air-to-water systems that can carbon capture. That's right, folks. They're generating fresh water from the air using integrated technologies never before conceived of. They've received several grants from the U.S. Air Force and the Army, and they're partnered with Google, Siemens, and more. They've raised tens of millions to date, and this is something that I personally cannot wait to buy. So here are Dr. Venkat Code and Eric Wendt of Genesis Systems. Okay, so I have to admit, first of all, I'm really glad to have both of you here. We got three people. That's a rarity for me, so it's going to be more dynamics. It's going to be more fun. Thank you both for joining me. Super glad to have you both here on the show today. Thank you for having us, Ross. So I've been interested in the concept that you have been working on ever since I saw the show. I don't know if you're familiar with the show on Apple TV called Home, where they go around the world. It's an original Apple TV show. They go around the world and they showcase different homes that are beautiful. It's more of an architecture show, really. But they also show people who have done very sustainable things. They showed a permaculture house in Sweden or like a home within a greenhouse in the coldest part of Sweden. They show all kinds of very interesting things to help you reimagine what a home is, which I, I really love. And one of the episodes, if I'm not mistaken, took place in Malibu, California, where I am. And there's this place called Xanabu, play on words of Xanadu. We love plays on words in this show. And they had a device that pulled water from the air and they talked about it very briefly and they showed it very very briefly but i was just i paused the video and i said wait what what is that thing what is this idea can we do that and that was how i planted the seed of this and then i came across your company now a year later two years later i'm not quite sure and so this is just very 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 important at this moment in time certainly for California residents people all around the world. So describe to us the journey of creating this product, what it is, what it does and how we got here. Wow, that that's a lot to unpack. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm known for. So I was like, "Hey, where's the question?" Yeah, yeah, no. So uh, maybe maybe I'll give uh, I'll talk a little bit about uh, about the birth of Genesis or how it all started. Um uh, our founder, David Stuckenberg, wa was a pilot in the military, uh, and he was flying over Qatar, uh, and he watched uh, trucks that were pulling water out of the last aquifer in Qatar uh, and taking that water to their eventual destinations. And, and from that point forward, Qatar had only 1.5 days of water reserve left. That's it. If there's any any disruption to desal or anything like that, they only have 1.5 days left to survive. And he knew that this was something that was going to continue to worsen and, and the problem of water scarcity was going to continue to grow. And at that point, he decided to solve this problem. Uh, he had some great access being in the roles he was in the military to some national labs. He found some best of breed solutions and some really interesting insights, which I can let maybe Venkat talk a little bit more to. Uh, and that speaks to our, our unique uh, approach to this problem. You're going to see other people trying to pull water out of the air, and almost all of them are doing it with a, with a refrigeration-type method, where they try and cool the air below the dew point so that that water naturally forms. It's extremely energy-intensive, and as we talk today, we're going to talk a lot about the nexus of water and energy. Uh, our path is different. We chose a chemical approach. 
There are mm. chemicals called hygroscopic solutions, which have a really high affinity for water. So that solution will naturally pull water out of the air with no energy required. Now, and then we need just a little bit of energy to separate out the fresh water from that. So taking that approach gives us the ability to do this at, at an efficiency that makes sense to scale. So that's where you're really going to start to see this technology take off. And, and I can pass the baton to Venkat because he's far more brilliant than I am at all this stuff. So it, it, way more fun to let him talk about this. <laughs> okay, great. So yeah, um, my name is Venkat. I'm here a research scientist at Genesis. Uh, I've been working with uh, the great team here at uh, Genesis for like past six, seven months. So uh, I lead the applied product R&D. And um, so I was originally from India uh, where I did my undergrad there and then uh, decided to move to US in uh, 2000, back in 2015 for my higher education. And then um, I started working in different academic labs, uh, different nanomaterials specialized in uh, colloidal science and interfacial science. Um, and then I, I completed my PhD and uh, master's at Cleveland State, uh, and graduated successfully in 2021. Um, and then I moved to University of Arkansas uh, um, uh, right after my PhD, working on like uh, different multiple projects, uh, how to sustainably produce chemicals or biochemicals from food waste using a, a catalytic bioreactor, membrane bioreactor. And then I understood how what, how much energy is being put in uh, to actually being you know in the environment of sustainable economy and uh, help recover the circular economy as well. And then. Um, I came across this Genesis website uh, when I was looking for the full-time opportunities and I was like, ooh, okay, they're pulling water from air and this is a bold innovation. Um, so I'm excited to be part of this team and, you know, I appreciate the leadership and uh, especially Dr. Uh, Stuckenberg and um, uh, President uh, Steve and Eric, CTO, our CTO, uh, has brilliant mind, you know, <laughs> a lot of ideas revolving around his head all the time. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to uh, be part of this team and help solve the global war scarcity, um, which I have personally experienced, and I will be discussing more stories along those lines uh, shortly with you guys. So, Venka, you you worked with uh, catalytic biomembrane reactors too, because I did. <laughs> you did? <laughs> no, That's I have no idea question. what you're talking about. It sounds amazing, <laughs> though. I have no clue what you're talking about. It took me every ounce of my mental strength just to remember those words. That's awesome. <laughs> so clearly, you are a smart dude. We know that for a fact. Um, so we're talking about chemical solutions here. We're talking about energy. So does that mean I need some kind of chemical input here to do this? Do I need a steady stream of chemical inputs? What do I need to run this thing, which is essentially a self-contained container from what I've seen? No, you're right. So so uh, you don't need any additional chemicals. It's a closed loop. It's kind of like when you see your air conditioner, there's chemicals inside of it, but you never see them, you never touch them, you never have to deal with them. So our, our solution comes in contact with the outside air, pulls the moisture, we loop it internally, it gets separated by our, our separation process, the fresh water comes out and the solution goes right back to collect more moisture from the air. So you never have to touch or experience those chemicals at all. Incredible. So talk to me about power requirements then. What do I need to power this? You mentioned that energy is a big factor in these things. Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. So uh, we do this at a bunch of different scales, right? We we have our, our smallest unit, which we call the water cube mini, which is a residential unit, and you would plug in, put it in I your need backyard. One. You, Give me uh, one now. Send be, it over. It's perfect. We'll ship one. We're around the corner. We'll get you one. Good. So uh, 
One for your backyard. It works. It looks just like the external piece of your HVAC system. So it'll go in your backyard. It's about the same noise profile, about the same energy profile. It'll sit back there and make you water 100 gallons a day. Uh, it scales up though, right? So then we have a shipping container size version we call our 5.0. That's for you know businesses, FEMA, emergency response, DOD, anybody who needs you know to go drop a container. Hospitals have been looking at a lot lately. Small island nations, uh, and that's like a thousand gallons a day for those bigger Sorry. needs. But we also make these in plant size, right? Like think desal plant with all, without all the negative effects, right? So we can make mass water. We've modeled these up to 100 million gallons a day, right? This Ooh. is a huge problem. We need a huge solution, right? And so the energy varies between those three, right? Clearly the one in the backyard is very different <laughs> than the desal plant. And each one has its own energy requirements. But we have pushed the technology to be the most efficient version of it for all three of those, right? Clearly, there's economies of scale when you get really big, but all the way down to the smallest one, we're the most efficient atmospheric water generation on the planet. Incredible. Have you talked to Gavin Newsom? I think he might want to hear about this. <laughs> I, I hope he wants to hear about it. A couple chats, yeah. A couple chats, yeah. <laughs> because we need some solutions out here in California. And obviously, Qatar is worse, but here's getting pretty bad. And as we have this conversation, I don't know how it is in your neighborhood, Eric, but in my neighborhood, we are not allowed to water outside at all starting September 6th through the 20th. So two weeks of not being able to water at all. So things are getting pretty serious here in the state of California as well. Not quite Middle East serious, but but serious. And sure. it, there's no sign of let up in the future. Anybody who's been out here, this has been an incredibly hot uh, summer. No clouds, no rain. I must admit that I'm getting a little personally concerned. Uh, how concerned should we be? I mean, I'm not an alarmist, but I definitely think your concern is justified, right? And it's not just you. Las Vegas is doing the same thing. They're outlawing Phoenix. grass. Right? Yeah. Arizona is having the same things. We see it over the border in Mexico. This is not a problem that's going away. No. You know, this is something that we're going to have to deal with. You're looking at the, the major reservoirs that feed California are close to Deadpool, right? They're not able to pass water further downstream. Everything on the Colorado is seeing trouble. California is being forced to cut back. A lot of that's going to be passed on to users like you. And we're hoping that we can be a piece of the solution to this, right? If you're using water that's coming from the sky, you're using less water. If a lot of people are doing that, it's less draw on the rivers and the aquifers that we use currently. So. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sold, and you might think I'm joking, but I'm really not. I was discussing this before we arranged this interview. I was discussing it with my wife. I said, I think I really want to do this. I want to buy one of these things. There aren't so many options. You mentioned uh, there are a few that you can find at varying price scales. I think yours right. seems like the most interesting for all of the reasons that you listed above. But, yeah, it has come to the point in my life where I think I want to buy one of these things. So I was telling Venkat, as soon as you're ready, man, just let me know because <laughs> I'll be a customer. We'll do, I got maybe space. We'll do, a show. we'll do like an installation and we'll, we'll oh, show that would it be off. Fucking fantastic. That would be awesome. <laughs> and it all ties into the greater point because whatever energy needs there are, you know, we're, we're discussing new solutions, right? Installing solar panels, getting more electric vehicles, getting off gas. So the idea of further enhancing that self-sufficiency is just something that I'm very, very, very interested in. I can charge my car and get off gas dependency. I can have this thing, which also can be powered, presumably from solar panels. I can reduce my grid dependency and I can also reduce my water dependency that is supremely attractive and groundbreaking stuff. 
And yeah. that's the kind of solution that I look for and I seek out on this show. And my mind is continually blown by talking to people like you. And yeah. I'm just thinking, why is nobody else seeing this? Why is nobody else seeing that we need to focus on solutions like this? Now, obviously, you've been supported by some big industry, by big partners. Uh, the Air Force has taken an interest. Uh, Google, I've, I've seen a lot of high-profile partners, which... So some people are taking this very, very seriously. That's obvious. And some people with money are taking it very, very seriously. But it seems to me that the the lay consumer, as it were, is not yet maybe focusing on these issues. How, yeah. how do you think the climate is changing? What's your perception of it? Well, I mean, I'll, 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 the, the most interesting metric for me, right, is when, when we started this, you know, a few years ago, the first hour of any conversation, we had to explain to the people that there was a water scarcity problem. Right. We had to say, hey, listen, this is coming. It's going to be a problem. Water is not going to be easy, cheap and free for the rest of our lives. And now that is a foredrawn conclusion. We walk in and people are like, hey, there's a water scarcity problem. I don't know if you knew we need to start doing this. Right. Yeah. So we can talk more about our solution and the problem. And that's been apparent at all levels. Right. We have seen a, a, a quicker uptake, I think, on in the industrial side or the commercial side than we thought we would. You look at a lot of companies like Microsoft and Google and uh, I think Amazon, Facebook, a bunch of the big ones, even like Coca-Cola's, Pepsi's, Nestle's, who are, who are pledging to be water neutral by 2030. They, they want to produce more water than they consume by 2030, right? So you can see that, the, that it has shifted definitely in that space. So we're seeing a lot of movement there. And residential, I think, again, it's coming around. And, and like you pointed out earlier in your point, this, the, the reliance on a centralized infrastructure for, for all these things is, is not the strongest system. If we wanted to upgrade the water that you get in California, it's like $11 billion to upgrade the infrastructure to get the water from Colorado River to your faucet in Malibu, right? That's untenable. But if you look at what we've done with power, right? Look at how many houses have solar. And if you've been part of any of the rolling blackouts or brownouts that have happened in Southern California, you'll look down the street and one or two homes still have lights on at night in the middle of that blackout or brownout. Those are the yeah. guys who pick solar. Those are the guys who picked a battery wall, right? Water, I think, is the next step. That decentralization of those commodities, right? That that improves your resilience and your sustainability, right? Yep. You're you're self-contained. You're not relying on these on these larger powers that be to provide you with the essentials of life. And I think we're going to start to see uh, a strong movement from residential as they start to 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 follow that same trend that they did with solar. Yeah, and I I think when you look at these price tags for these things. They seem expensive. In a world of cheap Amazon goods where a couple hundred bucks will buy you a big flat screen TV, you say $12,000 for this product. It seems like a lot. We sort of anchor things to the price of a car, perhaps. We say, oh, a car, $25,000 minimum. So half the price of a car or for the price of a decent used car, it seems like a lot. And yet, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking... Well, go one day without water. And then how much money would you be willing to spend? Infinite amounts, right? Take it all. I don't want to go two days without water. I got a family. So to me, it seems like a very, very easy uh, price to pay. And also, like you said, for companies who are sitting on just piles and piles of cash, like why isn't all the water in Apple, any company like that, trillions of dollars in the bank, install these units everywhere, scale up. It, it it just makes sense. I'm glad that you said that Nestle, because they have obviously a horrible, horrible track record when it comes to water. We don't need to get into that, but I'm glad that they've at least pledged that or are exploring these solutions. That's encouraging. 
um, for sure. So you are basically still like, what phase is the company in right now? You have a couple products that are prototype. Like, when are we going to market? What's the strategy there? Um, I'll start. <laughs> yeah, you can jump in. Whenever. I gotta get Ben Cat. Uh, I gotta ask him some sure. questions. I don't. I'm looking at yeah. you, man. I'm gonna yeah. hone in on you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was, I was uh, trying to add more points to uh, your previous statement that uh, you know uh, people are not ready or not realizing how uh, how painful the war scarcity can be because because it's uh, scary and uh, it's, I have personally experienced back in uh, in India. So as a, during my childhood, like, you know, I came from a place where we had to walk miles, you know, uh, to just to be able to get access to uh, portable water uh, sufficient for like a couple of weeks, you know, for the whole family, you know. Um, and, and I've been suffering, in, in fact, like uh, my personal health, it has been affected and uh, been suffering from fluorosis. And in case if you, uh, you know, uh, if you come across people who don't realize or thinking that, oh, we don't need it right now, uh, you know, let them feel free to contact me. I'll tell them and I'll make them scared. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sharing yeah. my stories, how painful it is. Yeah. yeah. I think you're, I mean, it's the Benjamin Franklin quote, right? We know the worth of water when the well runs dry. Yep. And, you know, we, it, it's you see it isolated situations, Flint, Michigan's, Jackson, Mississippi, and, you know, all of Southern California is starting to feel it right now. And, you know, you know, you can you can see people are getting that that personal experience with this water scarcity issue now. So it's starting to grow. Yeah. It's well, I'm going to I'm going to turn directions here. We're going to get a little bit negative and a little bit scary because I have to ask this. So I'm a big fan of philosophy. And if you're familiar with Immanuel Kant, there's this thing called the categorical imperative, which is we judge our actions based on if everybody did this thing what would happen? So if I'm kind to you, and if everybody was kind to everybody, we can say that's a good thing. So it probably makes sense for me to be kind to you. So the question when it comes to something like this, I know being ahead of the curve and interested in this, when uh, when Venkot sends me this prototype, I'm going to be sitting pretty with 100 gallons a day. I'll be able to live the Southern California lifestyle for an extended period of time. I will be fine. Now, if everybody does this at scale, what is the consequence of pulling all that moisture from the air? Are we going to see other problems? Is it going to make the general problem worse in some way? Do we have any kind of data on that? I can I can start, Venkat, unless you want to jump in. Yeah, you can start. I can add more details. Yeah, absolutely. To that. So uh, we do we do have that data, and that's an excellent question and a great place to start. And one of the uh, I know when I joined, that was my number one question, right? So uh, and the the interesting things are. Um, the amount of moisture in the air is increasing every year. Moisture in the air is uh, an accelerant to climate change, more so even than carbon dioxide, right? Uh, the amount of the air in, it, moisture in the air is massive, nearly 40 quadrillion gallons <laughs> at any given time, right? So there's two answers to your question. One, if everybody did it, we would still be a drop in the bucket. It's, there's that much moisture. Uh, the more important answer to the question, though, is we would move it in a positive direction. So if we were able to pull out any substantial moisture out of the air, we would slow down the cycle of climate change, right? Because it's an accelerant to climate change. So by pulling moisture out, we're actually slowing that and hopefully having some impact on this overall problem. In truth, we probably wouldn't pull out that much. Where you might see some interesting positive changes is places where you have heat islands, like you know, around the corner from you in Los Angeles. It is it is 
hotter in Los Angeles. It is perceivably hotter in Los Angeles because of all of the water vapor that's pushed out of all those millions of air conditioners all the time, right? We're just pumping water vapor out of cars, out of air conditioners, into the atmosphere, and you get what's called a heat island. Concrete and reflections and all that make the, the city actually hotter. So if the entire city started pulling moisture out of the air, LA would start to feel cooler, right? You would have localized positive impacts, but global positive decrease is going to be really hard to do because it's a massive amount of water that we need to pull. So little to no effect, but if there is effect, it's the right direction, not the wrong direction. So that's impossible. That's obviously too good to be true. <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> so that data is out there. So um, yeah. one, of, one of our investors is uh, one of the XPRIZE uh, uh, fellows who designed the water challenge. So they put out a water challenge, uh, I think 2016, 17. And before they went out and did the water challenge, they went and ran all this research, put millions of dollars into research on what the impacts would be if we did this on a truly global scale. If you you know, replaced all of D-Cell, if you placed our current water system with an atmospheric water generation type system, what would the impacts be? And this is, this is all the basis of their data. The uh, NOAA also ran a similar study on what the effects of moisture in the atmosphere are and what impacts could be made by adding or decreasing moisture to the atmosphere. So uh, it does seem too good to be true, but it's backed up by some really solid science. So I'm glad. Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we have about like 10 to the power 21 liters of uh, fresh water in, in the Earth's atmosphere. So it's dynamic. Uh, even though you pull it out, it would recover faster. And uh, which is equivalent to like 75% times uh, all the uh, water content in lakes, rivers, you know, ponds and everything. So we are definitely not running out of uh, moisture in the air. So I totally agree with Eric. Yeah. So along those lines, especially here in Southern California and certainly in Los Angeles, major metropolitan areas, the water quality that comes out of the tap is bad. And there are websites that you can look at. We can see all the crap that's in there and it's arsenic, it's lead, it's chromium, it's all of the stuff that Aaron Brockovich was working about. You talked about Flint, Michigan, the things that were in there from fracking. So we know that a lot of the municipal water supplies are horrible, chlorinated at the very least. They get pipes and all that. They're uh, At the old apartment I lived at, if I ran a bath, it was bright blue in color and it was just noticeable. That, oh, this is because it was an ancient building and old pipes, etc. So do I need to filter this stuff? Does your product filter it? Is it better quality? What kind of water is coming out of this? Uh, I'll start again. I'll let Venkat come in with the really good science. Uh, so uh, it, it's really pure water. We actually have to add minerality back to the water. So it comes out at uh, an extremely high purity. In fact, some of the people we're talking to are, you know, out in California, people making anything silicon-based need ultra-pure water, right? And we're pretty much there. We're talking to data centers. And one of the unknown secrets about data centers is a lot of them are very water-hungry, like up to 30 million gallons of water per day hungry. Whoa. Right? So we're talking to a lot of people in industrial or beverage because our water is so pure. For somebody like you and for our home unit, we actually add minerality back into the water before we give it to you. That's one of those things, right? Like the decentralization of your water supply means that you have control over that. It is not going through 700 miles of pipe from somewhere on the Colorado River, you know, through all kinds of, you know, <laughs> minerals and aqueducts and whatnot to get to you, right? You you know the supply chain of your water, right? It came from the sky into the box in your backyard through a filter into your mouth, right? It's a it's a it's a, a much shorter chain where we know all the parts and pieces to it. So yeah, it, it is more pure by by a long shot. In fact, we we add back in things for you so it tastes the way you want it to taste. 
Yeah, exactly. So the the uh, amount of errors, the probability of errors, you know, in our system are minimal uh, because, uh, give as Eric mentioned rightly. Um, so when you have that supply chain, so there are uh, multiple, you know, cases of you know uh, contamination. It could be coming from pipes or you know leakages or any sort of other means of uh, contamination or chemicals. Like back in, uh, I recently read an article where in India, so a lot of chemicals have been uh, released uh, through uh, different water streams from industries. So it get contaminated into groundwater, and then when you pump, that groundwater is coming in green color. So I mean, there is a high probability that groundwater is being contaminated, uh, and then even the filtration takes a lot of energy uh, for drinking purposes or any any other uh, applications. So for us, in uh, using especially using the atmospheric water, um, so we have very minimal uh, risk of contamination, and we do use uh, uh, high productive filters um, when at the air inlet and also the water outlet. So trying to uh, potentially kill the any sort of uh, bacteria or any any uh, protection for human health so yeah well it, it, it you bring up a great point about the complexity of our current water system in general and we know now that the Colorado River surprise supplies so many of these cities and towns along the way so it's traveling a physically very large distance. There's a lot of variables and whether it gets to its final destination or not, th then it has to be processed and it have to do all of these chemical steps. Then it has to get uh, distributed, which of course takes massive amounts of energy. So there's tons of intermediary steps, both in terms of things that can go wrong and also just energy usage and resource usage. So getting rid of all of that and saying, we just have this one step that you can power yourself seems to me like an absolute no-brainer. I mean, is there any downside? Uh, can we do, could all of California's residential population do this and it would be fine and we don't even need to do desalination? I mean, I think I, I think that's a, a beautiful one day in the future, completely decentralized would be, would be amazing. I think it's a long way to get there, right? The amount of water used and the different ways it's used, uh, commercial, industrial sectors, agricultural, is a massive user of water in California of all places, right? Um, but but I, I think you're right. The the system is archaic. It's a 50-year-old system that needs billions of dollars in restoration. I mean, the the other interesting thing in, in all the water systems around the world, the average loss in piping alone is 33%. So if you figure whatever Not you surprising. did, you dumped brine out, you you know sucked it out of an aquifer, and then you lost a third of it? Like... <laughs> It's, it's, see, it's, it's, you know, we've been doing it since the Roman times, right? And it's definitely time for a paradigm shift in the way we supply water to the world. Yeah. And I've read articles about this, obviously being very interested in it and being so close to the ocean, which of course your Phoenixes and your Las Vegases are not, there's different issues in different parts of the country, but being so close to the ocean here, obviously you want to say, look at all that water right over there. Clearly there's more than enough water. But then you look into the logistics and they're saying at most desalination could only ever provide something like 10% of the water needs of California. Also, the amount of waste, you've got all this salt and this stuff that if you put it back into the ocean will just completely tank the ecosystem there. So do you think that this method will become a percentage of these cities? What percentage do you think it might be more than 10% in the next so many years? 
Uh, uh, excellent question. A lot of variables. <laughs> um, uh, I do think so. I mean, I think you're right. You know, you look to some places that have massive amounts of rainfall. They they have other means by which to to capture and, and gather. Um, but a lot of the parts of the planet, you know, anything that's a few miles away from, you know, an existing abundant water source. Yeah, I think that I think this will become a major portion of the water. And starting with places like you know Arizona bunches of Mexico, Texas right now, North Texas is just crazy. Southern California, you know, they've, you know, how many veto desal plants have gone through, right? It's a, that we realize in Southern California, I mean, you know, Malibu, the ocean is part of the ethos, right? The ocean is part of the culture and you don't want to go ruin your ocean ecosystem for, so people can water their lawns, right? So I think, I think we understand that intimately, right? Um, so I do think, you know, in, in uh, huge parts of Australia, the Middle East, I think that's where it's going to start and we'll have large, large portions of market, market capture. And I think it'll it'll continue to to work its way outward into other places where they're like, I, I don't I don't want to damage other ecosystems at the cost of water. So yeah. I think it, I think it'll start in certain regions where we high percentage and other places will continue their current ways and, and will grow. And we are also reaching the peak salt condition where uh, people trying to pull more salty water out of ocean and trying to desal that. And then the concentration of salt in the existing uh, ocean water is increasing, uh, thereby like affecting the ecosystem of the uh, aquifers and all so forth. So it's getting terrible out there. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So in those uh, Middle Eastern countries, and of course the perception is, and the criticism is that there's a lot of waste happening in those areas that why why should you have a golf course in the middle east why should you have these green lawns all of it is artificial so do you think that this system will just <laughs> be one more piece in the wasteful puzzle in these areas or it's like now we're watering your golf course with this technology or, or does it matter maybe that's okay maybe it's better i don't know i, I mean i think it's always a possibility right i think yeah. we're we're at least early focused on, you know, consumers that we feel are going to do the right thing. But of course, people could could apply this technology to just about any. As long as there's enough money. Yeah, 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 they can definitely do that. Are there other equal places that have 1.5 day? Surely there must be other places that are equally low. Any that you can name? Uh, I think you'd be surprised, you know, and it, it's public data. If you even look like uh, in, in your own county, it's generally between 1.5 and three days, right? If there is a cast- catastrophic failure to the supply. You know, places where we don't expect that to be the case throughout the U.S., right? That's already something that they're considering, right? They don't have adequate water stores. Look at what happened in, you know, Texas not that long ago, right? Water was such a massive issue. Yeah. You know, we're boiling boiling pots of water. We were doing everything we could to, you know, to sustain. And, and cities are finding more and more that their water infrastructure is more fragile than they ever thought it was. Have you seen that meme on the internet of Fry from Futurama where he's holding out the cash and he says, shut up and take my money? That's the way I feel right now. <laughs> That's a good way. I, I like was ready it. to write you a check the first 30 seconds sure. of this interview. <laughs> we'll, we'll get you in contact with somebody. We'll make that yeah. happen. No, I think it would be great. I think, you know, platforms like yourself where we can get the message out more. Like yep. you said, we need more understanding of this and yep. on, on the individual basis. And people like you can really shout this message. And we appreciate that. Absolutely. No, it's it's it's, it's a, a pleasure and an honor. And we can talk now a little I mean, bit about not, the, what's that? Sorry, uh, it's, it's not only that. I mean, it also raised the conflicts among borders or, uh, you know, the countries, among countries, different countries, because of this global war scarcity. Um, 
people start you know fighting each other or it could even lead to wars of course um um because of this war scarcity yeah there are some uh, serious repercussions of that um of the global war scarcity yeah we're seeing we're seeing water as a weapon in a lot of geopolitical situations right where my country's up country for, uh, up river from your country and i choose to dam and use the water in this river that you've used for centuries right yeah and now you're looking for a solution that's a uh, a little more devastating than going to war, right? And hopefully solutions like ours can be part of that picture. Yeah. I mean, it has a long history of conflicts uh, for water resources. If you, if you ask me, it goes back all the way to the agricultural farms where people have different segregation or different uh, uh, properties and they fight for the water uh, rights. So basically, if your field doesn't get to water uh, the crop on the right time and uh, the crop yield would be lowered and which would in turn Uh, affect the financial situation of the families and everything so people generally you know tend to like go for fights just to get that water for the crop and it it can it, it is universal and the problem is universal and it goes back all the way to a much larger scale right uh, to the countries versus countries you know continents versus continents and so forth yeah, it's, it's it's easy to be nice when you have all of the resources at your disposal it's a lot harder when you're worried about your basic needs being met so If anything is <laughs> understandable, it's that, obviously. Yeah. What else is more important than that? And water is the, uh, aside from air, I don't want to be dropped into the vacuum of space. Aside from that, <laughs> water is pretty important. <laughs> right. yeah. um, so let's, let's talk timelines about this business. So the technology, because it's a relatively new business, right? 2017 was sort of the origin. And Venkat was saying before we jumped on this call that it was sort of in stealth mode for a while. And then we emerged. How did you go about bringing this to market? What was the process? Because there's been some funding. Obviously, I saw somewhere $20 million in funding in the first two or three rounds. How did you go about bringing this product out? Yeah, uh, excellent question. It's been a um, it's been it's been a journey, right? This is uh, this is one of those things that start out uh, day one. We had to convince people there was a problem. Uh, day two, we had to convince people that this was even possible, right? And and I think day three was showing people that we can do it at a scale and efficiency that it could actually solve the problem, right? So uh, it 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 went back and forth between you know raising money from investors, uh, finding grants, uh, building the first prototype so that you had some validity and some understanding. People could come out and kick the tires and drink the water, right? And realize that this was an actual real thing. We weren't doing magic. It was it was real science. Uh, and then we iterated, right? We we took a lot of what we learned and uh, from best practices in other industries and our ex previous experiences uh, to build to build quickly, to build smart, to build efficiently, uh, to get through iterations and improve on the product to the place where it's at today, right? And now we have, you know, multiple pro prototypes, multiple tests. We've had national labs come and come and test. We have different streams of grants we're working with. We're working with both government sectors, uh, municipal, and individuals, right, on prototyping out our technology. Uh, we have multiple manufacturers who were were separating it out to build in. Uh, we're raising a, a Series A round at fifty million dollars right now, uh, which we're hoping to close in the next few weeks so we can get back to uh, <laughs> the hard stuff. But yeah, it it has been an amazing journey, right? And we've we've had to leverage all our collective talents of you know our our board, our team to to get to where we are today, and and it's going to continue to grow at an absolutely blistering pace. And hopefully we'll be getting a year out in the not too distant future. That's awesome. 
yeah and uh, we have been working on some exciting projects in the lab especially one of the biggest pain point in our case was the energy uh, during the regeneration side right like you capture water and then you have to release the capture water using our proprietary fluids so um, and we recently um, developed a technology where you can just almost use no energy just to re uh, release the captured water uh, out of our proprietary fluid so this is very exciting and you know <laughs> great to be part of this yeah, team yeah. you know looking forward yep well yeah. you mentioned Ben oh, go ahead Derek no, I was just going to say that. I mean, that could be a whole other show, Ross. When we when we have when we can actually make that public, it's going to be a, a whole other breakthrough in the space. So we can't wait to. Come I would that. love to. Yeah, we'll reconnect then. I'm very yeah. very eager to to do That'd a part two on this. Yeah. Nothing is more important. So okay. I'm 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 game if you all are. <laughs> I'll just put it to you that way. Or if we do a special episode, that's fine too. Yeah. Um, we know, so Venkat, you came, obviously, have a very strong academic background. You wisely moved from Cleveland to Florida. Good call. <laughs> Just kidding. Actually, Just Cleveland to, to Arkansas. Cleveland to yeah, Arkansas. So then you I'm kept then going. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. We love Arkansas and we love Ohio. Uh, <clears throat> but, so you come from an academic background. But, Eric, what, what were you working on prior to this project? Oh, wow. Uh, great, great question. I hope you have, like, two hours left. Um, sure. uh, no, I'll, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. Uh, we, uh, I, I, I was a mathematician and physicist turned unwilling entrepreneur. Um, uh, w way back in my, you know, still love of sustainability and whatnot, we made an engine, ran it off of hydrogen back out of college, uh, started that company, uh, raised a million dollars, thought we were going to disrupt Detroit. Turns out Detroit didn't want to be disrupted, so uh, they didn't want a new engine. Uh, so I started a software company to pay back my investors from this first the first company. Uh, started uh, a string of startups, some o over a hundred, I think we've counted now. No uh, way. On multiple continents, yeah. Spent some time in Brazil, uh, all over Europe, all over Asia. Uh, kind of came back and and left the startup game. Had a few decent exits and said, okay, I think I'm done with all that. We were uh, in California, had a small portfolio of emerging technology companies, all kind of Im impact tech. Like uh, everything we did was a moonshot. Everything was designed to save the world. Uh, and then we we did a little partnership with the government where they were saying, hey, listen, you know, you you've done this innovation thing really fast and for a long time. How can we get a little piece of this? I ran into them speaking at a conference and I was like, hey, listen, we can take a napkin and get it to a store shelf in Best Buy in six months. And they were like, you know, it takes us 36 years to get from a napkin to a battleship. How do we like work on that accelerated timescale? So we put together a rapid prototyping lab with them um, and we started, you know, scouting tech and they threw us a bunch of problems which were fun to solve. The one problem we couldn't solve was water. We looked at, no joke, uh, hundreds of different technologies that were coming down the pipe in water and nothing would solve the massive scale of the water problem that both the government and the world itself were looking at. So I was a little bit disheartened uh, that we were not able to solve that problem for them. And a couple months later, through a bunch of odd connections, the Stuckenbergs showed up and said, hey, we heard that you might be the right guy to help us solve this problem. And uh, wow. it was goosebump moments. We met at a little airport in the middle of California, and I was like, oh, man, this could actually scale and do the job. And I oh, fought wow. for the longest time. I'm like, man, I don't want to go back in the startup game. My wife's going to kill me. Yeah. I'm not going to do it. And we argued for a while, and finally it was too compelling uh, of a mission. It was it was something that we could actually do to make a giant dent in this problem, and I, I onboarded back on as the CTO, and I was like, we're gonna we're gonna go solve this. So, 
it's been an amazing and fun part of the whole journey, and I'm, I couldn't be happier. We've made tremendous strides since then and watched amazing people like Venkat move this technology into places that we never thought possible. So mm. it's been an exciting road. That's phenomenal. Venkat, what, where were you doing before this? Well, uh, actually, I'm on a personal mission uh, while joining the hands of Genesis um, to help solve this global war scarcity that I had gone through this painful life in my childhood. Uh, so, as I mentioned, that we had difficulty accessing portable water, and you know, um, a lot of you know uh, health issues that are being caused by health uh, water scarcity during my childhood. I'm still uh, suffering; they're uh, irreversible, and uh, and a lot of friends, in fact, uh, in India who are still in touch with me uh, share very similar experiences uh, with water scarcity and their uh, and its repercussions uh, in their life. And this is very real and uh, still exists even now, like as a growing issue. And indeed, uh, we hear a lot globally in everyday news as well, right? So, and this connects with the, my expertise, like where I had worked academically for like past four or five years during my PhD, master's, postdoc. Uh, how do I connect this piece to the mission that I'm on? And how do I improve the technology uh, overall to help contribute to this uh, great mission that? bold innovation you know taken by the great leadership team and eric here um so this and this it has been phenomenal for the past six months and i'm learning a lot <laughs> uh, from uh the team as well um so i'm excited to be part of this team no kidding well we one of the things that i get really frustrated about and thankfully most of the guests i've talked to are not like this because of the people that i seek out but one of the things that i hate in the entrepreneurial world is there's two realities. There's this PR marketing speak. I hate when somebody just goes into the pattern of the kind of pitch that they've been making. And if you ask any entrepreneur, why are you doing it? Say, like, oh, to improve humanity. Every entrepreneur is out there to improve humanity. Well, pardon the language, but I call horse shit. They're out there to make a ton of money. And there's this PR side, like you, you don't make a ton of money unless you benefit the world. That's the sort of go-to standby in the entrepreneurial community. But there are clearly levels to this. There are one person's making a $300 piece of cheap plastic crap that they're selling to a consumer. One person is tackling a truly massive problem. And I see that separation very clearly. Both of you obviously are in the good camp and that's why we're here. So for you, Eric, having done so much in startup land, but with your first project being a hydrogen based engine, what has been your primary motivator? You say you were an unwilling entrepreneur. So if you're honest with yourself, did you start out seeking millions of dollars in money or was it always that you wanted to make a change? Yeah, I was, I think I, 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 I you know, uh, I started, started my life in, in the Bay Area, right? And grew up under, you know, the Steve Jobs of the world. And, you know, I, I think my my vision was always to make a dent in the universe, right? And to use right. the skills that I had, much like Venkat said, right? I was like, how do I use, you know, my scientific skill set to do that? That was that was my my driving force forever. And as I got exposed to more and more problems, I said, there's a the way that we generally try and go about solving truly global problems is with manpower, right? You throw money and people at it, and you think you're going to solve it. And I always felt that there was this missing component. There was this lever arm that we could use that was technology, right? And most of the world is using that technology to make things, you know, Instagram-y, Snapchat-y things, right? Or consumer yeah. goods, right? You know, you can, like you said, a $200 TV that's, you know, 
a technological marvel, right? But how many channels do you really need kind of thing? Like, how do we take that same technological prowess and innovation that we have in this country and use it to solve massive global problems? So that's always kind of been my driving force. Uh, Money's another one of those levers, right? That just kind of came along the way. My first company, I realized really quickly that it's not you build a better mousetrap, the world will be the path to your door, right? that there is a lot more to it. I had no idea who my end customer was. I didn't understand the business dynamics behind it. I didn't understand the techno-economic landscape of what I was trying to do, right? I had a really quick, harsh education on trying to get a technology that I felt was world-changing out into the hands that it needed to be in. And I realized that there were all these other layers that I needed to learn and be able to do. So along the way, became more of an entrepreneur and thinking about things and how do, how do I actually get this to deploy? Because the best technology that doesn't get out there is is worth nothing, right? Yeah. So that, yeah, that was and, the lesson. That and and I, I think in this space and in the political climate, one of the problems is, and I, I won't reveal who because this person told me in confidence after a recent interview that I conducted, but you get into it with a certain set of assumptions about what your battles are going to be. And there are these general go-to-market battles, convincing people, getting fun, all of the traditional things. But then when you're dealing with these political things and these giant incumbent behemoths, you realize that there are giant forces that don't want you to succeed actively. And there are interests at play. And this person was telling me how they thought they would have a certain set of problems. And then they were basically threatened, physically threatened with violence from essentially the mafia of where they were, who was used to doing certain things a certain way and saw a disruption to that as a problem. And like you said, we came into Detroit to try to revolution and they say, we don't want to be disrupted and we're more powerful than you are. So how do you sidestep this active opposition, I guess? Wow. Uh, again, an onion of a question with lots of layers and yeah. uh, interesting stories behind it that we can uh, maybe share a beer over one time. But uh, <laughs> sure. uh, I mean, the, the short answer again is getting, you know, uh, it, it, the iterations and reps of having done this a bunch of times and realizing that, you you know, you don't go into a vacuum, you go into a system that already has incumbent players with, uh, with a ton of inertia, right, and uh, a, a ton of vested interest in the system and status quo as is, right. So uh, aligning the right, right people and players to make sure you work through that. Um, uh, General Quast, who is our president, is an expert in that field and has, has been helping us with the you know political and cultural sensitivity of what it is that we're trying to do right what is what does water mean when you bring it into an environment right uh, into an ecosystem who are the players you know what are they looking for what what is what does success look like to them and looking at it through all these different players eyes and helping us you know you know proactively get into the landscape and solve this problem, not just on a technological basis, right? Venkat and I would love to go into the lab and make the most efficient possible water source ever, but we would know that that wouldn't get to the rest of the world if we didn't have people like, you know, Dave and Shannon and Steve who could open the right doors and make sure that this was gonna be met with open arms when we bring it to, you know, a customer and the greater ecosystem at large. So true. Anything to add there, Venkat? Yeah, I mean, uh, imagine, you know, uh, what if we run out, water would run out and dries, you know, um, if wells dried out or, you know, this is 
devastating and lethal so if anyone is especially in developed countries if anyone not feeling you know the pain uh, i would always encourage them come and talk to me uh, so i will explain them how painful it the is pain, and, man. Uh, which i <laughs> <laughs> it is it is pretty painful come so and talk to ben <laughs> if you really want to ruin your day <laughs> exactly i was so happy this morning uh, Um, I think we we talk a little bit uh General Quast uh grew up in a small tribe in Africa right and he's like hey if you went and dropped one of these systems off they would break it up for parts and sell the parts right so you have you have to think that there's a larger picture at play here right there's there's a different value chain and there's a different culture everywhere where you take it and you need to you need to embed yourselves in that and it has to be unique for the community you take it to so I think that has been one of the big things. It's much bigger than just technology and, you know, here you go. We we have to embrace that larger ecosystem. Right, and and thinking steps ahead. It's a chess game thinking about those consequences, being aware of that happening. Then you can say, okay, what can I do? And and that's the part that I love about this adventure that I'm on of learning about these things is that I get to see how these solutions play out. And because again, you have years or decades of playing this game out. And the question you must have been asking yourself the whole time is how can I make the most impact? What can I do that will be the best use of my brain? And you've tried literally hundreds of avenues and you've ended up here. But that to me is a continual thought process, a continual logical reasoning process where you say, okay, if I do that, then that will happen. If I do that, then the consequence of that is that. And you work it out through years and months and then you say, oh, that is eventually not going to get there. But this thing might, right? and then you dedicate your energy and you you had to block off tons of paths for yourself to ultimately land on the path that might be the right one fingers crossed knock on wood all of those things and and that's what i love because we know that to do these things we have to be clever we have to be clever in terms of what we create but how we market it how we pitch it we have to kind of sneak in in a certain way and we have to sneak in in the right context so that it will be embraced and not met with hostility and that's a delicate game i don't think it's easy yeah i mean, i think you're i think you're exactly right right and you know my personal experience in that is you know when you look at problems that are going to affect billions of people the 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 chess move for me is you know what which which single thing could i do that would later impact all those other people right and it's come down for me recently right you touched on a little bit earlier food right and different types of you know sustainability or or vertical or internal gardens or any of those kind of things right food is a massive one you know we know that this is going to be a huge issue by 2050 the population's increasing everybody's you know upscaling their diet and wants more more meat and you know all these things we know that we're going to have a problem in this but there's this huge food water nexus right like we can't grow food without water right so you know you think of agriculture everything that we do you know the headphones on you know on Vincat's head took a thousand gallons of water to make right we don't realize that you know everything we need takes water so you know water impacts everybody just from a drinking aspect all our food all our manufacturing all our travel and transport the thing the, the thing that i think is really interesting is the data right the fact that we're making this podcast right now right that this is being stored somewhere that this is in a data center somewhere 30 million gallons a day uh, 30 million gallons a day for that data center right water impacts everything and like you said the chess move of what one thing can i do to make the biggest dent water is right up there at the very top of that pyramid of how do i make the biggest impact 
Yeah, and somewhere somebody knows the statistic of how much water we're using during this call, yeah, which right I'm now, afraid I, I, I'm afraid to find out. In his head right now. So. Yeah, it's <laughs> probably not good because we just think, oh, it's technology, it's fine. But no, behind closed doors, it's massive resource consumption. Well, I think, you know, two things that I love about doing this. I get to talk to really smart people, and I just enjoy hearing the way that really smart people think. That's a great, great, great pleasure of mine. Um, I, I really enjoy the way that you think about things. But the other thing that I would like for other smart people, my my one ambition with this show is that somebody out there who is also smart makes the decision to use their smartness to better ends. Because obviously somebody such as yourself, you would probably be successful in any number of companies, any number of startups. You could be the CTO of any organization. Same with you, Venkat. You could easily both do pretty much whatever you wanted with the track record that you have. So to convince people such as yourself to focus on things like this, that would be my number one goal with, with doing this kind of thing. So having made that leap, and you said your partner, Eric, didn't obviously want you going back into startup land, but it was just so dang compelling that you had to do it. So having made that leap and being here now, Venkat, it's six months for you. How do you feel waking up every day to work on this? Do you feel a different kind of motivator? Are you more excited to come in? Are you more fulfilled? What is it like to work on a project of this scale? Well, I mean, uh, worst case, it can be hard to imagine. And uh, I'm excited, like, every day, like, you know, what kind of things can we do uh, in the lab to make a bigger impact on the uh, humanity, you know, right? So if if I could come up with a technology that minimizes the energy requirements uh, by even one kilowatt hour per, you know, gallon, that would be a huge deal, right? So that's what motivates us. Like, how do you keep doing things what, you've been doing or what you've been taught to do uh, in the lab and that would impact the global war scarcity um, minimization. So I've been really excited to work in the lab every day and uh, uh, coming up with new solutions, uh, research solutions to, to solve this energy problem. So, I mean, we recently discovered a great technology, like as I mentioned, how do we tweak the proprietary fluid to, you know, uh, to minimize that energy requirement. So that's what keeps us going. Those rewarding moments um, uh, keeps us going, you know, every day. Eric, any thoughts? I mean, yeah, it's, uh, uh, I, I made the decision early on, right? It's easier to wake up in the morning if you're contributing some some greater good, right? And that's kind of always been the direction I wanted to take. But this is, this is taking it to another level. And I mean, again, Ross, it's great that, I think it's amazing what you do, and that's another thing that's severely lacking in our world right now is people who are sharing this message. You know, this message. I think I think you're right. It is these collisions, right? I I got in touch with this on a complete serendipitous moment, right, where I met two people in an airport and that you know got passed to me by somebody who probably knew nothing about this, right? But but somebody like you, I, I believe it's those collisions, right? It's there's somewhere else, somewhere out there, a scientist who's working on something in a lab that could help propel us forward 100x, right? And I'm hoping that they're watching your show and go, holy cow, I could do this, right? Or there's somebody somewhere who's in a water scare situation who's like, I have no hope, and then they see your show and they go, hey, now I have hope, right? It is these 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 serendipitous collisions that can be created by people like you in mass that can help us you know, get both the problem further out there and the solution further down the road. So I, I thank you for what you do, because again, this is, this is how we're going to meet the next person who's going to, who's going to help us save the world. Well, I, I really, really do appreciate that. 
And uh, my philosophy is very much in alignment with yours in the sense that technology is this big thing. Is it good or is it bad? But we know that it can be good. We know that there's often unintended consequences of the stuff that we do or something that was good 50 years ago. We say, oh, but when you multiply that out, it turns out it causes all these other things. Because cars, huge breakthrough, amazing. And then we built everything around cars. And I was like, well, yeah. eh, maybe got to reconsider that one. So it's always evolving. But if anything is going to save us, I believe it is technology. That's just what I think. I don't think there's really anything else at this point. Uh, things have gotten so dire. We know that we've missed so many deadlines. Now, there's a complacency to that where the lay person might say, oh, they'll figure it out. They being the ambiguous scientist or <laughs> somebody is going to solve this problem. But of course... At some point, that somebody has to be the proverbial you, the proverbial me. At some point, we have to actually decide to try to solve this. So there is an optimism there, but it's it's a nuanced optimism. It's not just like, well, we'll be fine. Somebody will figure it out. It's like, well, we might be fine if we pool all of our resources and all of our brain power and all of our smart people at this and explore all of these avenues. And the extent to which you have done that, Eric, is just mind-boggling that you have gone through hundreds of solutions hundreds of companies that's pretty wild and then you arrive here again by by a coincidence so who knows but i'm very very glad that you're doing it i'm very very glad that you're fighting this fight the both more glamorous than it was there's a lot of you know dumpster fires and, and, right. and crashes along the way right but uh yep. but same thing right we're we're all yep. doing what we can with what we have to solve the problems before us right well fantastic i mean i know we're running over we had a little bit of a a slow start so i want to bring this episode more or less to a close but i'd like to give you each the final word what is one thing that you think that one step that the average person can take? I'll let each of you answer this. What is one thing that somebody could or should do? Think you want to start? <laughs> like in terms of uh, uh, what changes that they could make yeah. in a day-to-day -day yep. life. I mean, what I could really suggest is try to minimize the water use as, as much as possible. Uh, possible uh, wherever it's necessary or it's needed uh, um, so I mean steps like for for example I've gone through the academic background a lot and then um, I have beaten the often path by joining get Genesis right uh, where which like they have taken a great initiative with a bold innovation and how to produce water from air uh, with minimal energetic costs and resources so I would I would I would suggest, you know, uh, scientists like myself out there uh, try to connect their expertise with the mission that they're really passionate about and then try to work for it. Money, it comes uh, along the way. I mean, uh, shouldn't be an issue. And otherwise, I mean, I would spend four years in grad school, you know. So, um, so I always encourage try to connect their passion to the expertise yeah, to solve these problems. Like Great insight. What, what I've been yeah, um, mine's probably not too far off there, and I think you stole my my tagline, Venkat. I was going to say, <laughs> you know, they, 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 these people, I think they have to, you know, beat the often path, right? Like our our enemy isn't, you know, water scarcity. It's it's the apathy, right? Like I don't think there is the one thing is doing one thing. You know, get off the couch, get off the sidelines, get in the game, 
match that one thing that you're really good at with that one thing you're really passionate about. You know, if that's even if that's just sharing, right? You see this podcast and you tell 10 people, right? You know, you're really good at, you know, talking to people and shouting about it and, you know, expanding fantastic. If you're a scientist, get in the lab, right? If you're who, you know, whatever you are, whatever your skill set is, and just commit to helping be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Well, that's a great way to wrap it up. And gentlemen, it's been a tremendous honor to speak to both of you. It's been an absolute pleasure. So grateful. And yes, please, I'm not kidding, put me in touch with your sales. We are going to, that will be an episode. We're going to document the install of this thing. Uh, so we'll we'll reconnect whenever, whenever y'all are ready. I'm very much looking forward to the day. But uh, thank you so much, both of you, for making time out of your busy schedule to to sit with me. Will do. Ross, thank you so oh, much. It's been a privilege. Keep doing what um, you do. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, <laughs> with that, the official podcast is over. 